Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com on the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of life Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. Glad to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook under LDS Leadership Principles. You can find this podcast at mormondiscussion.podbean.com as well as on iTunes. We also have our blog, themormondiscussion.blogspot.com. On our episode today, we have LDS author Michael Ash. Brother Ash is a Mormon scholar and apologist. He is on the management team for FAIR, the Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research. He's written dozens of articles for FAIR, as well as his own website, mormonfortress.com. He has written books, Shaken Faith Syndrome, which also now has a second edition. In December of 2008, he published Of Faith and Reason, 80 Evidences Supporting the Prophet Joseph Smith. Now let's go to our episode with LDS author Michael Ash. Mike Ash, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm doing well, thanks. Appreciate being here. Good, good, good. Glad to have you on. We, uh, we're hoping to get a chance to talk to you about, uh, your book, Shaken Faith Syndrome. And I just noticed that you had a second edition come out. So we'll talk about both, uh, the first and second edition, uh, in just a moment. But I thought we'd start off with maybe you telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, just to kind of set up for the listeners your background and what brings you on to this, uh, this interview. Okay. Well, uh, I've been an avid student of, uh, LDS scholarly studies since about 1980, roughly, uh, or the early 80s, anyhow, and reached a point where I, anything I could get my hands on, back then it was, uh, Hugh Nipley books and farms and so forth, and, and the more I read, the more, uh, Information I kind of, you know, cataloged away both in, in my head and, uh, in filing cabinets and stuff. And as the internet exploded, I ended up getting online to get into different discussion groups and, and realized that some of my studies provided, uh, answers for people that were, you know, struggling with their faith. And, uh, so in time, um, I guess my, I wouldn't say expertise, but I guess what, what I, found that maybe I was able to do is to turn some of those scholarly studies and answers into maybe more 
popularized answers for people that uh, needed questions and answers. Um, you know, joined FAIR, ended up finally taking some of the things that I had written in various articles and putting them in, into uh, a, a book form and, and kind of, uh, you know, working it out uh, kind of from front to back as, as uh, people have their, you know, faith crises of what you know, what they might be going through. So, Gotcha. Now, was there a moment early on when you first got into apologetics that really pushed you to make an effort to help others? And the reason I ask that, in my own personal um, story, I, I came across anti-Mormon material before I even got baptized, and it was something that really took me from being able to take the church slowly and kind of encounter it in a naive way and really deal with it in a serious manner. And your book seems to really do that. Was there something, some event um, that really pushed you into apologetics or something you came across that you said, I really got to get out there and get involved in this? Um, I can't think of a single event. Um, I, like I said, I, I was on the Internet in the early days before uh, there was really much as far as the graphical type, uh, you know, web-based was more messages. Uh, and there was a couple of LDS message boards that I was on there, and, and we always get people that, mostly critics that would attack the church and a lot of it was pretty silly stuff but there was members on there that uh, would struggle with some of the questions and like I said you know I, I knew the answers to these and so I would start responding and I found that you know it made me feel good to be able to provide answers uh, where sometimes there were members out there that didn't have answers and, and, and that's I think really kind of what what launched me getting involved in apologetics for a while there. In fact, I still have my own website, Mormon Fortress. I don't do much with it, um, but I launched that before I was a member with FAIR and then joined up with FAIR primarily because it uh, it, it works better to be with like-minded people and kind of in a collaborative effort than, than I found working on my own website uh, and trying to you know duplicate things that other people were working on as well. So, yeah, not, not a singular event, but more just uh, seeing that there was a number of people that, uh, weren't aware of the answers that were out there. And if I had that information, I felt it's kind of my obligation uh, to try to help them out and, and to set things straight. Now, I know we'll get into talking specifically about uh, how your book, uh, what its approach is. But just for one who has read the book, I find the approach to be a very fresh way to tackle uh, those who struggle between faith and doubt. What was what was your impetus? I mean, there's there's lots of people out there who are in apologetics, and there's lots of people out there who are defending the church. What was the impetus for you writing this book that kind of tackles things from a, a different perspective? A couple of different things. One, I felt that uh, since FAIR, again, being a member of FAIR, everything's pretty much online. Uh, we're, you know, doing, obviously, there's, there's uh, you know, podcasts and videos and things like that, but it's all online, and a lot of members are not aware of FAIR at all. They have no idea that FAIR exists. And so I thought we really needed to get a book into bookstores so people that aren't as online savvy uh, or not familiar with FAIR can be familiar with, with uh, some of the arguments presented by LDS apologists. The other thing is that at, through the years of working with people who are struggling with faith, I saw some common uh, themes and some common perspectives that people had that many times uh, created stumbling blocks to challenging their faith. And that's what I really try to address in the first part of my book is, is this common, uh, these paradigms and worldviews that end up creating problems for people. And, and unless they see that their, their, uh, their worldviews are, 
I don't want to say not necessarily not naive, but perhaps uh, not fully, you know, uh, investigating what what uh, uh, potential problems they could be. It it it, it uh, presents, like I said, stumbling blocks that uh, can all of a sudden rise up and cause people to abandon their faith. And so that's really what I thought. I need to address the basic problems first, and then address you know the specific problems later. One of the things I found when I say your book has a fresh take. One of the things I found very helpful was rather than just taking here's the question, here's the answer, you dealt a lot more with assumptions and expectations, which I don't see it handled that way in a lot of places, and yet I find that approach to be probably the most helpful for those who, who are struggling. So you're the author of Shaken Faith Syndrome. Would you mind sharing with us a synopsis of of what the book tries to cover and um what its purpose is and, and maybe what makes it different from uh, from other books out there that address the issues sure yeah the uh, the in fact the the subtitle the shaken faith syndrome uh, hopefully explains a little bit of that it's strengthening one's testimony in the face of criticism and doubt and uh, like I said a lot of people a lot of members they uh they're they kind of almost accidentally happen many times upon uh, LDS critical information. And it's partially due, in fact, greatly due perhaps to the Internet. You know, they're searching for material for a lesson or talk, and they come across a site that maybe uh, looks like it's it's uh, pro-Mormon or, or maybe neutral to uh, Mormon views, and it's not. It's hostile. And the information... Information can be presented in a faithful context or a, a negative context. And uh, many times the context affects how the person uh, perceives that information. And, and all of a sudden it's, you know, taken as a, uh, as an attack on the church or maybe attack on their beliefs and, and can damage it. Or, or it's, you know, taken in a positive way that, wow, this is new information. I didn't realize this. And, and there's enough websites out there that uh, put in a context that's used to damage faith. And so uh, my book is to, has two missions. Number one, it's to help people who are struggling with their testimony or, or if they have a family member or friend that are struggling with their testimony. So I try to provide uh, some answers for that. Secondly, I'm hoping to inoculate the average member that already has a strong testimony, but by putting some of the... Uh, perhaps more challenging issues into a faithful context so they're already aware of them so it doesn't shock them if they stumble across this on the internet in in a in a negative context that's trying to damage their testimony so the first part of my book um and you know I don't remember exactly how much it takes up of this I don't know it's probably not quite half but I deal with the like you said the assumptions um the 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 perspectives the paradigms that from which we approach the uh, the challenging issues. Um, when any of us come across things that challenge our beliefs, whether it's religious or political or whatever, uh, it can be painful. And so I try to deal with, you know, what are the feelings that, that happens to somebody when they uh, discover this kind of stuff? What are some of the natural ways that we respond to it? And I try to lay this out so somebody can understand what they might be going through or what, again, a family or a member or friend might be going through. And then I try to approach it uh, by showing that that critics 
they present the material as if they are objective observers. And here's just the facts. Let the facts speak for itself, and you'll see that Mormonism is false, and Joe Smith was a fraud, and so forth. Well, I, I, I spent some time pointing out that they're not objective observers, that nobody is. Everybody has a bias. Um, everybody has a frame of reference. And so I spent some t- time talking about that. I also try to point out the what should be obvious to Latter-day Saints, but unfortunately is not, is that the scriptures and prophets are not inerrant, are not infallible. And I, you know, show how they can be both human as well as, uh, divinely called servants, uh, in the church. They are entitled to their opinions, uh, they can make mistakes, but nevertheless they hold the keys to, uh, the saving ordinances and, and they still can receive revelation for the entire church. And try to show that for Many of the anti-Mormon arguments hinge on, well, this is not how a prophet should act. This is not what a prophet, a real prophet would say. And so I point out that, you know, prophets are not robots, that they're not fax machines, that every word that they say comes from God. And so if we approach this from a realistic perspective, that it's uh, Heavenly Father working through fallible human beings, that we're going to see, you know, blemishes, and we're going to see uh, errors in opinion. Uh, th- they shouldn't be expected to know everything about it, all scientific facts or, or history or anything else. So I spent some time uh, dealing with those type of issues um, and also talking a little bit about, uh, you know, what we can expect, uh, not just from prophets and from Scripture, but even from science and history and how there are still, you know, biases built into each one of those. And I'm a firm... Uh, believer in, in scientific discoveries. And I think science is wonderful, but, you know, there, there are certain limitations, and especially when critics try to pull out, uh, you know, science to say, you know, well, this shows that Joe Smith was false, and usually on things like DNA, you know, which I spent a whole chapter on in there, but those types of things that they're, we don't have enough information from science many times to make definitive statements like the critics would try to claim. So if if somebody were to read this, my book, um, I ask that they read the first part from front to back because it, it there's a sequence to it and it flows so they can understand um, how we should have realistic worldviews about prophets, about history, about bias, and so forth. Um, and then the second half of the book takes those same principles and applies them to the most popular uh, or more common. LDS critical arguments about whether it's the first vision or DNA or uh, plural marriage or uh, the book of Abraham. And so if we have an understanding of the first part, that can actually be used to understand criticisms regardless of what new criticism may pop up. Um, And like I said, so I try to apply those principles in the second half of the book with the more common anti-mortem arguments so we can see that they're not these slam dunks that critics would make them out to me. In fact, many times that they actually backfire. Um, but uh, the hope is that that uh, somebody can apply these principles in their lives no matter what uh, criticisms they might uh, be confronted with. Now, again, there's always this discussion among apologists whether whether you try to attack things from the angle of inoculation or whether you try to, to deal with issues after they arise, and which leads to kind of this question, and I want to cover inoculation a little bit later, but one of the questions I've got for you, you write this first edition of Shaken Faith Syndrome, um, and kind of keeping in mind that some see inoculation as a dangerous thing, uh, how was your book received? How did it go over? 
Uh, it's been received very well. I, I've re, I've got a lot of emails from uh, lay members to bishops to uh, you know elders, quorum presidents, relief society presidents, so forth that have been very uh, happy about it. It's helped them. It's helped family members. Um, I, I've had a number of people who were maybe sitting on the fence and, and wondering whether they should leave the church or not, who have been helped by this stuff I've put in my book. So overall, it's been received very well. I. The only critics I, that so far I've seen of my book are from basically what we would call anti-Mormons. I, I haven't seen any criticisms from somebody that says, well, I was a believing member and your book drove me out of the church. That that hasn't happened. Right. Now, now that I've said that, there'll probably be somebody out there that will want to send that in. Maybe a critic will want to take up that challenge and, and cl- make that claim. But so far I haven't seen it happen. And, and I think it's because... You know, even in medical medical inoculation, you know, if somebody gets a shot uh, to inoculate against a disease, there is a small risk of uh, death or some sort of damage, but the risks are usually pretty small and outweighed by the advantages they have. And, and that's, I think, the same thing with uh, historical or intellectual inoculation um, for issues that uh, might be troubling the church. Uh, I, I think that the, the risk is relatively small, especially if... And I, I hope I've done this well, but I've tried to present all this stuff in a faithful context. And that's really what it boils down to is, yeah, there's, there's some challenging issues. And, and yeah, the, you know, past leaders and even current leaders, you know, aren't perfect. But if we understand them from a perspective of real world and how God deals with, you know, fallible human beings, it really shouldn't be troubling. And I think that's why I haven't seen, um, any responses from anybody that the, that the book has caused them any damage? What happened be, after the first edition that you felt there was a need to put out a second edition? A couple of different things. Uh, I'll first start off probably because of uh, typos. And not that there was a lot of typos, but anytime something's printed, there's some typos. And I would find a few, and I'd have somebody you know, email me, and I kind of kept a list of them and, and made corrections, and I figured that eventually when we got around to a second printing, we would fix those types of things. Well, what happened is that my studies don't stop either. And so I keep reading, I keep studying. Uh, for two years, I wrote a weekly column for the Mormon Times, which is owned by the Deseret News. And I would put new information in there. And so I decided that as I was fixing any kind of typos, I would start adding some of this new information that I found to uh, either support what I've already written or to add to it, or in a couple of uh, situations maybe to correct something that was a bit ambiguous. And so that really, I think, is what led to wanting a second edition uh, I've, I've added to, um, most every chapter. In fact, um, out of the 28 chapters in there, if we cl- include the, uh, forward in it, 15 of those chapters, so over half of them, have new additional material. Um, and I added, in fact, a whole, an entire new chapter in the second edition about race and the church. And so we talk about the, the priesthood issue as well as, uh, Lamanite, uh, skin, you know, supposedly skin color. Um, the second edition, since we were we were going ahead and added chapters to it, enlarged it a bit, uh, we also added a, a, a vastly improved index. And so it's easier for people that want to use it as a research tool to find things. And I did reshuffle a few things, uh, both in chapters 
uh, moving a couple of things around as well as uh, taking some things from one chapter and moving to another to make it flow a little bit better and get a little better continuity. Um, but I added more material on, on archaeology. I added more material on uh, exit narratives where we're... Uh, Ex-Mormons leave and they talk about, you know, why they left. I, I have a discussion on that. I, I spent more time talking about uh, uh, what I would ter- term the Vernal Hawley theory of the Book of Mormon, where supposedly Joseph Smith was influenced by uh, some of the city names in his surroundings. So I added a section on that. I talked a little bit more about Book of Mormon geography in general, uh, added more updated information on DNA, um, those that are listening might be familiar with uh, Don Bradley's uh, pr- fair presentation a couple of years ago on the Kinderhook plates. Well, that changed some of the information that I had previously in the Kinderhook chapter, so I added that new material. So, so those are the types of things that uh, there was enough changes in it that it wasn't just uh, you know fixing some typos anymore in the book. We need, really need to come out with a enlarged uh, and revised edition. Uh, edition. In fact. Um, ended up adding almost 60 pages to the length of the book. Wow. And, and the font is a little bit smaller as well, so <laughs> so there's more words per page as, as well. Gotcha, quite a bit more material. Yeah. What If you had to, to name what the biggest issues are that Latter-day Saints run into that tend to cause hiccups with their faith, uh, what are those? There are several. The ones that I see pop up, the most frequently, at least from a statistical standpoint, I would have to think would be uh, plural marriage is always a big one. Um, Book of Abraham uh, is usually up there. And some form of problem with the Book of Mormon, either whether it's archaeology or DNA, uh, something that would argue that the Book of Mormon is fiction. Usually those are the ones that seem to pop up uh, the most frequently. I, I had a lady at church uh, approach me Sunday, and she has a brother that, uh, you know, claims that uh, he left the church over the DNA issue. And, and I, I find that one is one of the most uh, easily refuted um, problems uh, with, you know, the Book of Mormon. It, ju- it just really doesn't hold water. But nevertheless, there are a lot of people that have left the church over that. Uh, plural marriage, you know, that certainly can be an understandable, uh, a difficult issue, especially in today's society, you know, we, we see, you know, the, the recent uh, events in, in Cleveland, you know, where, where you have, you know, predators uh, and uh, the Warren Jeffs bit with the with the plural marriages there. And so those types of things bring uh, any kind of intimacy that goes beyond a, a traditional relationship. It brings it to light and it it makes it difficult for our modern world, or even in Joseph Smith's world, to understand how somebody could be married to uh, multiple wives and have that come from God. So that, that that's a challenging one, even, I think, for faithful Latter-day Saints. And there are, uh, I think, very realistic uh, answers to help people understand this. But like I said, it's it's certainly one that uh, um, can cause heartburn for people. And and the other problem is we really don't have a lot of revelation on the issue, and so it, a lot of it is speculation. You know, I mean, if it, it comes down to if if we accept Joseph Smith as a prophet um, because of testimony or maybe other intellectual insights, um, you know, then that maybe eases the little bit of a discomfort that comes with a plural marriage because. 
you know, if if uh, we know that he's a prophet, he's doing what God's told him, then we don't necessarily understand exactly all the reasons for plural marriage, but we accept that God, you know, he had a hand in it. But like I said, I think there are some rational uh, answers to that. I try to provide that in the book. Uh, book of Abraham, another challenging one. Uh, and it's been receiving, I think, a little more attention in the last few years. Uh, and it's mostly because, again, we don't have, we don't have all the, all the scrolls that Joseph Smith had and the surviving scrolls that we do have. Uh, they present challenges for Latter-day Saints because they don't talk about Abraham. They don't mention Abraham. They don't look anything like the book of Abraham. You know, well, how do we reconcile that? Again, I, I provide answers to the book and I think they're very logical answers and, uh, but it, it's something that there's, it's unknown because we don't have all the information out there. We can't compare all the scrolls to what do we have in the text of the book of Abraham. And so we can't say, well, here's a, here's an easy slam dunk answer. Uh, there's some speculation involved in it. So th- those, t- I think, are probably the most difficult issues that I see that uh, people are presented with. Then there's a lot of easier ones that, uh, you know, come up all the time as far as, uh, you know, Changes to the Book of Mormon, the, you know, as anti-Mormon say, there's been around 3,000 changes, 4,000 changes to the Book of Mormon, you know, and the, the, those are silly arguments. Um, you know, the first vision, I think, is on strong, uh, grounds. There's, you know, like I said, you know, the, uh, fullness of the gospel, crit, you know, a lot of critics claim that, you know, how can the Book of Mormon contain the fullness of the gospel if it doesn't mention it? So there's a lot of silly arguments, and I try to deal even with those in, um, in my book because they're not silly to everybody. I mean, those those are things that can destroy testimonies if you don't understand what the answers are for them. It seems like there's this process where somebody is naive to all the, the ins and outs of, of church history. They'll encounter a few problems, and as they begin to kind of delve into those just on a surface level, those can be very problematic. And it almost, you almost have to push through that and really buckle down and do a lot of study and research and reading and going back to original sources before you can kind of overcome some of those struggles. And I think that's where maybe the critics have the advantage. And it's one of the things I think your book picks up on very well is to try to give more of an in-depth without, you know, writing 30 pages on each issue to give an in-depth look of why it's problematic and then to come back and say, but these are the answers. Um, do you see that as a process as well? Yeah, I definitely do. It's it's a much easier to make an accusation than it is to respond to an accusation. And I think that some critics are aware of this, or at least they're intuitively aware of this. Uh, anybody can make a charge, but to respond to it can take a lot of uh, spilled ink, a lot of words. And most people don't want to spend that kind of effort to dig through it all. P- people want easy answers. They want, you know, uh, just little quick quips that answer their, their questions to, to let them know that everything's all right. Well, we're talking about complex issues. And so a critic knows if they throw out uh, a challenging question, it, it can't be easily answered in a paragraph. There has to be more background information given to it to really supply a satisfactory answer. And, uh, you know, and that's why I spent the first half of the book trying to talk about those principles first and uh, then, you know, spend a little bit of time on each individual issues. But uh, um, if, if a Latter-day Saint, you know, is struggling with issues and they feel that their testimony at least had worth it some time, I think it's, you know, they should be willing to put a little bit of effort into actually understanding the responses. Uh, and, you know, hopefully most people that uh, 
are challenged by their testimonies will put in that effort. But I know a lot of people don't. It, it's um, a lot of people don't want to put effort in, into uh, a variety of different types of thinking, and this is unfortunately one of them. Right. It it sometimes not that I'm saying it's an easy way out, but without putting the work into the issues, it's easy to get hung up on some of them that there really isn't a need to do that. Right. My que- my next question revolves around just in general faith crisis within the LDS culture. And, and I wonder if, and I want to get your, your thoughts on this. Do some of the issues we run into, some of the problems we, we kind of incur as we delve into LDS history, do these at least in part occur because culturally uh, we've kind of set up an incorrect framework? And by we, I mean, layman, I don't mean the church necessarily. I mean, I realize that as you talk about in your book that sometimes leaders uh, say things that that perhaps other members of the of the of the leadership of the church would disagree with, and perhaps all fifteen aren't united, as Elder Christofferson and Elder Anderson pointed out in recent conferences. But do we, as a culture, set up an incorrect framework by placing so much emphasis on, for instance, knowing? And so there's this value in our in our Sunday meetings of just knowing everything to be true, and then also on the urban legends and speculative doctrines that a lot of members tend to thrive on talking about. Uh, maybe outside the three-hour block, and sometimes even finding their way into Sunday school. Yeah, you know, and I think that's uh, uh, certainly an issue. It's not unique to Latter-day Saints. Uh, you know, I get emails or Facebook posts of things that are, are you know, if you go to Snopes, uh, you, you find quickly that uh, the, many of these things are false. Uh, urban legends, you know, there's... there's uh, People at colleges that, uh, I want to say anthropologists, but I'm not sure if that is exactly right, but there's people that study urban legends in, in general. I mean, they make a specialty out of it. And uh, it's just natural for uh, people to want, again, these type of quick answers and stuff and to speculate. And that's, you know, of course, you get conspiracy theories and everything else out of it. But but as far as from a Latter-day Saint culture, um, if... I don't know if, if, if it's necessarily something that could be easily changed. Um, you, you know, Latter-day Saints, we should be some of the best people on the planet to, to really search for education and truth. I mean, there's a lot of emphasis. There was from Joseph Smith. There's a lot of emphasis on the, the church officially on that. Um, and, and so we should be the ones that are digging a little bit deeper, moving beyond um, you know, some of these cultural artifacts of, of, of urban legends and stuff. But unfortunately, it's just, I think it's just human nature. So I really don't know of an easy way to escape from it. As far as, you know, putting an emphasis on knowing, um, yeah, I, I think you have a point there. Uh, that's been discussed many times on, on different, uh, blogs and so forth. But, uh, we have to remember that Heavenly Father has set up the, the plan as a faith-based system. And so it, you know, too often we uh, think that we have to say, I know the church is true and I know the Book of Mormon is true. For the, well, if we really analyze it, uh, we take, we we have faith in these things. We believe them. And so I think that that does probably put some pressure on somebody if they don't feel like they know it, that, well, what's wrong with me? Maybe I don't have a testimony and, and uh, you know, maybe you've... Uh, could possibly again create a stumbling block for them. So I think as as members of the church that that would probably be something helpful if if we kind of got away from these absolutes um and, and start to recognize that there's gray areas, there's you know differences between people and and that uh, faith is a big part of our religion just like any religion and uh, uh that's really what what heavenly fathers designed is not knowing but 
but uh, putting faith in him. Your book seems to address two crowds. Again, we're talking to Mike Ash, author of Shaken Faith Syndrome. Your book tends to address uh, crowd number one, which is those who perhaps have not encountered troublesome material yet, or maybe they've got a spouse or a family member who has, and they're trying to to get some uh, uh, some help to to assist with their understanding of what their their close family member is going uh, through. The other crowd are, is those who who those who are struggling, those who are having a hard time with some of these difficult issues. And my question is along these lines. It seems like, unfortunately, once someone comes and asks for help, often it can be too late. Uh, they sometimes are so deep in doubt that it's hard to even build up trust and and to help them work their way back. And I'm not saying it's impossible, and I, and I, and I know of success stories myself, but realizing that it's much better or easier or helpful to catch them on the front end of a faith crisis um, what can we do as members of the church to to help with that uh, before it gets to that point? Yeah, you know that's a that's a tough one because, like you said, when somebody asks for help, many times they've already uh, made up their mind. They've already gone over that edge, and I think the problem is that uh, we don't even close friends or family members may not know that this person is having a faith crisis until they've reached that point where they've already made a decision. So that that's a real challenge. Um, I think one of the things that we can do is at least make members aware that doubting is not a sin. Uh, again, that's part of the faith process. And so if we are open to let people know, you know, yeah, that there's you can run into something that's troubling you and you shouldn't feel like uh your ward is going to ostracize you that nobody's going to talk you into your into the Sunday school class or in your quorum um and that you're you know kind of be excommunicated because you're unsure of something if people feel more comfortable recognizing that doubt is part of the process maybe they'll be a little bit more open with when they're first confronted with questions and so they can find answers to it because yeah like you said you know many times when they reach a point where they tell somebody else, they're telling possibly because they've already made up their mind. And by that point, uh, trust is really a, a big problem because uh, that's one of the biggest problems, really, is the trust issue. Many members that come across this information, they come across it the, for the very first time in, again, a critical uh, setting. And so they think, wow, these critics know more than I did as a Latter-day Saint about my own church and the church has lied to me, and they're crushed, and they feel betrayed. There's a you know breach of fidelity there, and so then all of a sudden so I can't trust you know I can't trust my bishop, I can't trust Mormon scholars, I can't trust apologists, and all of a sudden it's not so much as questions that are that they're throwing out as more as their answers already that this is why I've decided it, and so it's really hard to to turn around and come back. So if we let members know it's okay to question, it's okay to, to, uh, you know, express doubts and to find answers to begin with that you're not going to be shunned for it. Um, you know, hopefully they can find answers to these resolutions in faithful context before, uh, these feelings of, uh, mistrust surface and, and, and take over the, I mean, that ends up becoming the, the problem more than the questions do anymore is that that lack of trust. Mike, I get an email every other week or so, from a member of the church who has a spouse who is struggling in faith, either on the verge of leaving or having uh, just left recently, 
who is pleading for help, who is looking for the right framework or the right approach to take to at least begin to have some kind of open conversation uh, with this person who they love dearly. Uh, would you have any thoughts or suggestions on on for the believing uh, member on how they can be of more help to those who are struggling? That's a really tough one. I, I get emails like that frequently uh, myself, and uh, my heart goes out to them. I, I have people that are close to me that have left the church, and so I, I have uh, not a spouse, but I have other people, and so I, I have a, a little bit of taste of what uh, they might be going through. But, yeah, it's that, that that's a very challenging one. There was an article in the Ensign a couple of months ago, and I wish I could remember who who had written it now, but it was basically addressing this topic. And the person, I think it was a, a woman that wrote this, but if I remember correctly, the primary advice, and it's how I've always felt as well, is you love this person still. You know, Heavenly Father doesn't turn his back on us when we uh, stray off the path. He's always there. You know, we, we have, of course, the story of the prodigal son and, and, and uh, things like that. We need to continue loving this person as long as the relationship uh, is still there as long as both parties want to be in it uh, they should we don't know what the future brings whether it's in this life or the next we don't know exactly and there are stories as you're aware of people who have returned to the church and they might return in a week a month 20 years we you know like i said or somehow maybe in the in the next life i i remember the uh story that Orson Whitney, if I remember correctly, uh, told, related the story about Joseph Smith that said, um, if you have wayward children, at some point the tentacles of love will reach out and bring them back, uh, either in this life or the next. And I think that that applies very much in the situation that we have here as well, is we can't give up on somebody, can't give up hope. So that's the main purpose, or the main uh, approach is, is, you know, still continue to love them. Now, it gets down to the nitty-gritty. It gets a little bit tougher as far as if they start bringing up uh, LDS critical uh, claims. You know, how do we do, 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 you know, that can create arguments, uh, hard feelings. And that probably requires as much individual differences in approach as the number of people that are faced with it. My basic advice would be that if the discussions get heated, uh, we know that drives away the spirit. It doesn't do any good. You're, you're better off not discussing it, quite frankly. You're, you're better off making agreement that I won't uh, try to, you know, push pro-Mormon stuff on you as long as you don't push anti-Mormon stuff on me. And that might be the best way to uh, deal with immediate problems of, of um, discord in the marriage. In another marriage, you might have somebody that uh, can bring up these issues without getting, uh, you know, angry uh, and heated. And in those type of situations, uh, if the if the spouse is willing, if both spouses will probably be, have to be willing to listen, um, you know, then yeah, okay, let's let's uh, have the spouse that's critical of the church lay their cards out on the table. These are the issues, and uh, a believing spouse should you know find answers, and that's what my book provides. That's what Fair provides, and then say these are the responses that I see as answers to these questions. Now they may not convince the other person, it may not convince either person, but at least it'll show this is why I don't accept your position. This is why I I have my uh, position. And if there remains at an impasse, then you know uh, then that's the end of it. Um, the one other thing that I think is very important. Uh, and I've had this discussion again with some other spouses who, who, uh, or 
people whose spouses have left, is that we need to make sure we focus on our lives and our relationship with Heavenly Father. We need to be careful not to let that slip away. We need to constantly strengthen it. And hopefully, um, we can be that light that we don't hide under a bushel that um, a spouse that has left the church can see and say, you know, there's something more there. There's something that I want back in my life. There's something that I yearn for. If we're living Christ-like lives, that will show in the way that we deal with others, and it sets an example. And I do believe that there will will be a number of of spouses that can be touched by by that and and long to have that feeling back in their lives and and, uh, maybe open the door for possible return. If we don't see it happen in our lives, that's okay, too. But we still have to keep that connection with Heavenly Father secure because we're the only ones that can, it all comes down to a personal choice. And if we, if we give up on our connection with Heavenly Father, then, you know, there's nobody that can do that for us. So we have to keep that connection strong and trust in Heavenly Father that, that we'll be blessed because of it and that He will do what He can to, uh, uh, reunite family bonds as well. It seems like a lot of individuals, when they enter a faith crisis, and you touched on this, there's this desire to take those around them that they love and essentially, and I, and I understand where they're coming from because I felt it myself. There's this desire to open up their eyes. There's this desire to, you know, let me explain to you why I feel the way I do and see things the way I do so that you too can, you know, have your eyes opened and, and see the church for the way I see it. And what I love about your answer just now, one, you talked about having empathy, being a, a shoulder that people can can lean on. But at the same time, if someone's to the point where they're being contentious and wanting to make their case against the church and and prove it uh, to not be true in a, in a way that is, that's going to bring a, a wedge between a husband and a wife or a father and a son or a, a mother and a daughter, that that's almost never going to be a good thing, that there's got to be a better way of handling it. And so I appreciate you kind of sharing that if, if it, they're able to talk about it, great. If it's something they both can do calmly and and share uh, both their sides of how they feel about different things and look for answers together, wonderful. If there's a spirit of contention about it, then uh, sometimes the best thing to do is to to respect each other, but not to have it be uh, a central topic every time they have a discussion. Yeah. Yeah. In uh, in the discussion of inoculation and in talking about the pros and cons and recognizing that at least up till now. The church itself has tended to remain hands-off on discussing the difficult issues, and I think there's good reasons for that, but they tend to do that. And I think for my listeners, there certainly are some things coming down the pipe that, that may change that a little bit. But up till now, the church is, rarely addresses issues uh, that would cause one to have doubt in the church. And understanding that, what is it about the approach of your book, Shaken Faith Syndrome, that doesn't open a can of worms for members uh, who have yet to encounter these issues. What is it? What is it about your book? And I don't know. Maybe, maybe in your, uh, maybe it's not something you can quite put your finger on. But what I felt when I read your book was it was a very safe way to encounter the issues and to and to look at my framework, my expectations, my assumptions. And I don't know if if you can maybe put that in words. But what is it about your book that makes it a safe approach? rather than being something that could hurt somebody's testimony. I, I think what it is is that I've tried to really put uh, my thoughts, my perspectives and heart into this. 
I'm aware that there are difficult issues out there, but I also have uh, a firm faith in the spiritual things in which I believe. And I, and I think there, it's not just that I'm believing in something that's out there without with, you know, as critics would say, that I have nothing more than feelings to base this on. You know, for, first of all, I think my spiritual impressions um, are more than feelings. I, I, I can tell the difference. Um, you know, I, I, I get sad when, uh, you know, old yeller gets shot, and uh, uh, but I, I feel different about that than I do when I when I uh, read some scriptures that really touch me. So th- there is a difference. But in addition to that, I think from an intellectual standpoint that the church positions are defendable, that uh, there are intellectual reasons to believe in the church. Uh, I think the three witnesses are a, a solid one. I think many of the things that Joseph Smith restored are solid ones. Now, they don't prove that they're true, but they bolster my faith, that they support and they strengthen it. I've read enough uh, anti-LDS literature, as well as anti- uh, or atheistic literature. I, I read quite a bit of stuff from atheists, um, quite a bit of stuff from science, and I understand uh, where these perspectives are coming from. And um, they have good arguments, that, that they have rational arguments to support their beliefs. And so when I wrote my book, I tried to show exactly what my frame of mind is, is that I, I can understand that there's problems out there, but I can also accept these problems within a framework, within a paradigm that that still believes that there's a God, that Jesus the Christ, that Joseph Smith is a prophet, that we have a current prophet. And so I try to present these things the same way that I understand them. And, and hopefully that provides, for me it provides a safe haven for these difficult issues, and I'm hoping that it will for others as well. A lot of my listeners will will know this because it's something I talk about a lot, but uh, Fowler was a behavioral, I believe, scientist. He he talked came up with a theory of, of faith development. I realize it's not a concrete model. It's just a theory. I realize there's other uh, ways of seeing how faith develops, such as uh, I think Perry's uh, scheme of cognitive development. But essentially what Fowler says is we start off in this naive stage, all of us, and and most of us get to a point where we see things very literal, very black and white. And then over the course of time, we move on into what he calls stage four, where we're we realize that things don't match up the way we thought they did, that there's more nuance to the world than we thought. And it's in this stage that Fowler would say that people of faith would run the risk of running into a faith crisis. And then when they move forward into the stage five, they would put things back together in a way that works better. So in a sense, looking at your book, they would correct their assumptions and expectations, and all of a sudden the church could be true again. And the reason I bring up follower stages of faith, it seems like a lot of us as Latter-day Saints look at people when they get, then they go from knowing to no longer knowing and having doubts. We tend to see that as going backwards. A lot of us as members will look at someone who's struggling and say, uh-oh, they're going into apostasy. Or, uh-oh, they're, they're backsliding or they want to sin or we see they're no longer knowing as some fault on their own. And yet what Fowler would say is it's actually a progression of faith. And when I look at the gospel, I see the same thing. I see Heavenly Father taking each of us and putting us in a place where we're very safe. We've got all the commandments around us. Everything fits. There is no nuance. And then one day, just speaking for myself, one day you wake up and the puzzle pieces don't go together anymore. And people around you tend to make you you feel uncomfortable for being in this 
this place where you're already kind of at the edge of a cliff. Do you think there's anything we can do? And I know you've talked about this several times throughout this interview. Do you think there's things that we can do that would help people feel more comfortable when doubts arise and help them maybe see that this can actually be a part of progression and moving forward in your understanding of the gospel? I think that making um, our LDS culture a, a safe enough environment for those that are questioning because I, I do think that there is an, a little bit of an attitude sometimes among some members that you're right you know if they're questioning they're they're slipping into apostasy um and, and i don't know if that's universal for latter-day saints or but it is certainly something that uh you know some latter-day saints will could depict in in their uh demeanor or, or attitude to somebody that's questioning if as long as members know that yeah that's part of uh, life is, is questioning. And, and I think that maybe we kind of go through a, a, a more of a, a roller coaster shape of these types of things. We may have these highs and lows and, and periods of doubt and periods of strength in, in the uh, belief and then might be followed by another period of doubt. Uh, you know, there's different things in our life that, that can trigger uh, doubt. And of course, my, my book addresses the intellectual aspects. Uh, there are a number of people who leave because maybe they have a, a, a child die or, you know, something horrible happened. I, I, you know, I have a person that I knew very well that uh, left the church because of divorce. You know, how, how I was married in the temple. How could the Lord allow this? And, and uh, for a while, didn't believe there was a God. And, and so there's a lot of things that can cause doubt in our lives. And so there's this roller coaster and maybe these stages that kind of come and go through our lives. But, uh, you know, the intellectual ones, what I've tried to address here. And, and I do spend a little bit extra time in my second version of the book talking about this, where it's okay to have doubt, that that's kind of a normal process. And, um, I quote in my book, uh, Bruce Haven, uh, he has a book called The Believing Heart. And I don't remember off the top of my head how much of this I quote in there uh, without looking it up in the book, but he talks a little bit about how uh, accepting ambiguity in life is part of the, uh, you know, maturing process. And, you know, he mentions a story in there. And again, I don't actually remember if I quoted this and shake a face into it or not, but I remember he talks about his book, you know, as a, as a young missionary and, um, newly baptized, uh, couple drops him off the door and he turns around down the street to come back the other way to go where he's headed. And, uh, you know, there they are still wet from, uh, the baptism, uh, lighting up a cigarette on the porch. And, you know, those types of things uh, alone can shake faith, but it's part of reality that, uh, you know, we're all on these different levels, and we have to understand that some some people uh, are going to struggle more than others. Um, you know, not everybody is going to be blessed with, uh, you know, this firm testimony that you, you can never pierce. And if we can be accepting of the fact that those doubts exist, I think that will help members that are struggling to know that yeah you know you're you're welcome to the church the doubts might be there how can we help uh, but if the doubts don't go away you know you're, you're still you know part of part of us uh and, and if uh, people don't be af- aren't afraid to express their doubts maybe it's more more easy to find those answers and to reach that stage five that you're you're talking about from fowler i'm with mike ash today author of shaken faith syndrome mike i want to finish up with with one question and i want to share a couple of examples I want to, uh, I didn't want to delve a whole lot into the specific topics of the book. I want people to have their interest peaked and to, uh, to check your book out. 
But I do want to ask you one, I guess, tough question that I know you address in your book. And I want to share a couple of examples so it can kind of put it in its place. And most of my listeners will will be aware of these issues. I know recently I, I myself have been in discussion trying to to arrive at an answer on why this is. But the critics will talk about how the church hides information. And the two examples I'll use, one is Joseph Smith's translating method of the Book of Mormon. It, it, I know in Enzyme articles here and there, we hear a mention of Joseph using a seer stone. I know Elder Nelson uh, sometime in the past couple of years gave a talk to mission presidents, new mission presidents going out, and talked about this. But it is difficult to find it in church manuals, uh, the, the Sunday curriculum. It's hard to find it in there. And it even seems like sometimes the manuals put more emphasis on the Urim and Thummim, the Nephite interpreters, uh, more so than recognizing that a majority of the translation took place by the seer stone. The other example I want to use is polyandry, which is Joseph being sealed to women who were already married to other men. That practice or historical policy or practice or doctrine, I don't know how I want to word it, that seems to be nowhere to be found uh, within within church manuals or at least the Sunday curriculum and even extending that to uh, the Enzymes and other magazines. Any thoughts from you on why that is or maybe how we can better frame how we see what the church shares and doesn't share or, or what is hidden and what isn't hidden and how we maybe have a wrong assumption about that? You know, good questions. I, I think that the, I, and I talk about this a little bit in my book, that the primary purpose of the church uh, and the curriculum is to strengthen um, our spiritual resolve. It's to renew our covenants that we make at baptism, or it's to you know help people lead to baptism or take them, you know, lead them to the temple. I mean, those are what all of the curriculum is designed to do. Um, and it's difficult, number one, to take the time in. These, you know, really what ends up being a relatively short block, uh, to focus on some of these difficult questions. And then you have to consider that we're a lay church. And, uh, you know, there's enough problems with many times teachers that stray from lesson material that get, um, obscure, you know, you know, how many, uh, wives did, does Heavenly Father have? You know, where's Kolob? I mean, th- things that really don't matter in the first place is all speculative. And when you start introducing uh, some of these historical uh, aberrations, it, it really kind of opens a can of worms to, to try to discuss in a curriculum-type setting. Now, having said that, um, I think the church has recognized that it's perceived that these things are hidden because uh, they don't want church members to find out about it. And and I don't think that's necessarily the case. It's just, like I said, it's difficult to talk about it in church settings. You know, can something be mentioned to the into the end sign or into other uh, church manuals? Perhaps. Uh, the difficulty, again, is that even the church magazines, you know, the main focus is spiritual, uh, sometimes with intellectual articles on there. But they also, even from a magazine point of view, they have to... Uh, write these things focused at, you know, what many times uh, editors call the lowest common denominator, is that you have a wide range of people reading these things of, of various backgrounds, intellect, and even different countries, uh, different cultures, and the same thing with the curriculum. So it's, 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 there's a difficulty issue just in addressing this. Personally, I would like to see, at least as far as the uh, translation process of Joe Smith, I would like to see something more 
brought out in in the ensign and more artwork and so forth. And and I would not be surprised if we we see these things happening. The um, I think it was my friend Kevin Barney that once said that the church is like a like a ocean liner that you know you can't steer these things quickly. It's a slow process, and I think that uh, we, we may in time see more of these things addressed. Um, the other problem, and uh, I read a quote just the other day from Bruce McConkin, and I wish I would have this handy, but he said something to the effect that being called to a leadership position doesn't all of a sudden make you a scholar. Um, you know, that's to paraphrase, obviously. But it's very possible that many, some of the church leaders are not really completely familiar with, uh, you know, the more accurate historical studies on Joseph Smith's translation process. Uh, you know, they spend their time running the church and, and involved in so many other types of things that uh, they maybe just haven't had time to study those, you know, particular aspects. Now, I think that there are some church leaders that are very familiar with it, uh, but I just don't know if all of them are. And so, again, you have maybe just a little bit of a, a lack of information of, of direction of where to go with this type of thing. And that's focusing primarily on the... Uh, the translation process, and of course, you, you have the whole problem of, uh, of you know, that was called the Yerman Thummim, and it's an ambiguous term that referred both to the seer stones as well as, as uh, uh, the Nephite interpreters. And so, you know, like I said, I would love to see an article that hashes all that out and kind of sets the record straight, and, and maybe that'll approach it. From the polyandry standpoint, that's a that's a lot more challenging, just because we really don't have uh, any official revelatory information on it. We have bits and pieces of historical information, but it's it's vague and it's mostly um it's very speculative of why and, and so then all of a sudden the church is left with the predicament. Um you know, how do we address a speculative historical event that we really don't have enough information about to set it straight because you know right. how, how do we set something straight when, the, when we don't really know? So that I think is the biggest challenge on the polyandry I- issue. Um, I-, I think kind of back the church is kind of backed in the corner of that one. It's-, it's hard to come out and talk about it when there really isn't an official way to approach that, uh, just because of lack of of historical information. No, that- that's good. I want I want to kind of second that. The reason I threw that out at the end, and I didn't want to you know back you into a corner or anything. But lots of the listeners to this program either have somebody close to them who's struggling or are struggling themselves. And I know personally that, that there is this feeling at times like the church is hiding information. But like you talk about, and, and what my experience also uh, speaks of, is that one, majority of the members of the church wouldn't really care to hear about this stuff anyway. And so to spend time in the three-hour block delving into apologetics, it just isn't going to... Uh, it isn't going to feed or nourish the majority of people who come to church on Sunday simply looking for the spiritual strength to get through another week. So on that end, it just doesn't make sense. The The other issues you brought up with polyandry, sometimes talking about that issue and maybe some others, unless you have a long time to really delve into it, you're actually creating more questions than answers. And, and again, church just isn't the place to do that. We need to walk away from there feeling the spirit and, and knowing what's going on. So I really appreciate your answers there. Um, before we before we finish, is there anything else uh, regarding your your book, Shaken Faith Syndrome, that uh, you think my listeners should know, or any uh, last points you want to make? Probably the only thing else I can add to it is that uh, because I have had really good feedback uh, on the book 
from people who have themselves struggled or who have had somebody um, that's close to the struggling. I, I, I had a an email of a Facebook type message just uh, a couple of days ago uh, from somebody that uh, had a very close person close to them is struggling. Gave them a copy of the book. They're attending church again, and um, you know my my book is designed to open the mind to understand that we can live with some ambiguity, that we can live with the fact that there are some challenging issues, but not have it affect the spiritual experiences that we have. And so I hope that if uh, somebody out there is struggling, that, uh, you know, we're, we're working on on hopefully getting an e-copy. Everybody's gone, uh, you know, Kindle and stuff now. We're hoping to have a, a version of that out real soon. Um, and, you know, people can contact me by email uh, if if they want to as well, or contact me through FAIR, uh, be happy to, you know, field any questions that, you know, they might have as well. Mike, if you, if, if you'll supply me with, uh, with your, uh, contact information, I'll be sure that it gets put up with the episode in the, in the kind of information that goes along okay. with that. So the people have a way that, to reach you. I, I will do that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I get, I guess, you know, probably my final remarks on this would be is that there are, you can be a believer in the church as well as a believer in in accurate history, in science, in scholarship. They aren't mutually exclusive. And there is nothing that I have found in any kind of information presented by critics that automatically is, is the death nail, you know, that the smoking gun that shoots down the church. There are just nothing that exists like that. There are always answers, logical answers to any challenges that, that pop up. And so if you have faith in the church and you want to cling to that and, and you have strong beliefs, uh, just know that uh, all all charges against the church have logical uh, answers. Wonderful. Uh, Mike Ash, author of Shaken Faith Syndrome. Mike, where can they find your book at? Uh, you can find it at the Deseret Bookstores for people that live in Utah, or you can find it... Uh, at the fair uh, online bookstore at, at fairlds.org. There's an online bookstore there, or you can find them on Amazon. Excellent. Thank you, Mike, Mike Ash, for joining us on Mormon Discussion. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming My Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of to rescue me from danger interposed his precious precious blood 
that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, clothed then in blood-washed linen. How I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransom soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. To grace, how great a debtor Daily I am constrained to be Let thy goodness, like a fetter Bind my wandering heart to thee Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it Prone to leave the God I love Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above.